Scripture reading this morning will come from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that would be on page 1074. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, again, we welcome you. It encourages us for you to be here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It is great to have Doug and the Blevins and the Joneses with us. Uh, We welcome you, and we are thankful that you're here. And uh, we look forward to our time that we can worship and serve God together. Let's be sure and be looking for ways this week that we can glorify God and look for ways that we can serve and help each other as a congregation. Do keep in mind the 50 days of prayer where collectively we're striving uh, to depend wholly upon God and to strengthen the good habit of prayer, but also to beseech God. Uh, In thanksgiving for the past blessings of this year, but looking to 2007 and realizing we cannot make it alone. Uh, We cannot make it without God. We've probably had as many prayer requests submitted this year as we have in any of the other years. Uh, Please do not, by not participating in this, be saying no to your neighbors sitting around you when they're asking for you to pray for them. Please don't be telling them no. Be sure and pick up a prayer card and utter those prayers of of requests that others have asked us to pray on their behalf. The little girl was participating in a class project at Bible class. They were writing letters to missionaries, but the kids were encouraged to not ask the missionaries to write them back individually because it would take so much time, and they explained that the missionaries were so busy. And so the little girl didn't know exactly how to word all of that, and the missionary really got a kick out of her letter when he read these words. Dear Mr. Missionary, we wanted you to know that we're praying for you, but we don't expect an answer. Now, I wonder how many of us that that could summarize our prayer life. Oh, I pray to God, but I don't really expect an answer. I mean, to me, on Sunday morning, when we have an elder to begin each of our Sunday morning worship services, praying on behalf of the sick and for those that are hurting, that's just more of a ritual. It's something good to do in our religion. I wouldn't dream of us really getting an answer from the fact that an elder's prayed for him. Or how many of us could say, you know, I used to believe that God answered prayers until I went through a certain situation in life. I went through a hard event, a great challenge, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and 
I just couldn't see how God ever answered that prayer. So I don't really expect an answer anymore. Or maybe someone else says, you know, I'm kind of new to Christianity and and I, I think I know what prayer is. It's, it's talking to God. But the reality is, I really don't know if God really answers all those prayers or if it's just an exercise to grow us. Friends, on and on, the discussion and questions could be laid out about the topic of prayer. I hope in the time that we spend together this morning that we can come to a greater understanding of this simple point. God expects us to ask. Have you asked God lately? Now, as we see and as this lesson is developed, I think you're going to realize we're not just talking about have you gone through a verbal exercise? Have you asked God to help you with something in life? You see, by the time this is over with, hopefully we'll all understand that through the Scriptures that when we ask God in prayer, it's more than just an exercise in, in verbiage, but it is literally laying out our life and saying, God, I'm wholly dependent upon you. I cannot make it without you. Lord, I'm begging you. Be with me. Here's my pleas as I know how to utter them, but here's my life as I cannot live without you. I want to remind you of one of the stories that to me is, is one of the great stories of the Old Testament. We'll hit on just a few of the highlights to get to the part that is really spectacular in the life of Jacob. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. 20 years would pass before they'd have their first pregnancy, and when they did, it was twins. Esau was born, and the Scripture says that he was red and hairy. Perhaps it was hairy, uh, red hair, or maybe his skin was, was red and, and he was hairy. But nevertheless, he was the first one born, and his brother came out next, Hill Catcher, which is the name Jacob. That's what it means. He grew up to be one that would care for sheep. But his brother Esau, the firstborn, he was the one that would go out and be more of the, the hunting type. Later in life, there began to be a lot of jealousy between the brothers. On one particular time, Jacob took great advantage of his brother Esau. Esau had been out hunting and he came in and he was so hungry he did something very foolish. It's hard to even imagine that a man would do this. His brother had red stew cooking. As he came in, he asked for some of the stew. His brother demanded the exchange of the birthright in order for him to have the stew. And his foolishness, he agreed to it. Now to you and I, that may not seem like a lot, but I want you to remember that the birthright meant that when your father died, you were the patriarch of the family. This was before the Levitical tribe and the priesthood, so they literally were priests in their own families. It was a tremendous honor and a tremendous responsibility. Not only that, the birthright gave a double portion of the parents' inheritance. Not only that, the one with the birthright would be the one that had the judicial rule within the family. And then if you just want to make a blanket statement, in the Jewish or the Hebrew custom, there was a tremendous appreciation and value that came from just day-to-day -day life, the way one was viewed, if he was the one that had the birthright, why in the world did he exchange that? Oh, we could debate that, but in this story, the point is he did it. Later, he lived to regret that tremendously. But yet before Isaac died, Jacob needed his father to give him the blessing so that he could have that birthright. Rebecca was on his side and she knew that 
as Isaac was preparing to die, he called in Esau and said, go out and kill some game and fix my favorite meat. And when you come in and serve me, I'll eat it and I'll give you the blessing. And again, the blessing to you and I today probably doesn't have nearly the significant value that it did for them in their culture. It was the final blessing where the father would give to the one that had the birthright, the great blessing. It was the handing over of everything. While he was out hunting, his mother got Jacob and said, go out and kill two kid goats and I'm going to prepare meat. She took the skins and placed on her son so that he would feel like Esau, placed the clothes upon him so that the clothes would be Esau's and even smell like Esau. The father had already failed in his eyesight. He went in to serve his father. His father thought it sounded like Jacob, but yet it felt like Esau. It smelt like Esau. The meat tasted very similar to what Esau would cook. And it was there that he gave the blessing that would bestow the birthright upon the son. Now here's where this becomes real important in this story. Just as he left, it was only a few minutes later that Esau comes in to serve his father and he is told by his father, your brother has deceived me. I've already given the blessing. He begs to receive it. He can't give it again. And he leaves there making this vow. Once I mourn the passing of my father, I will kill my brother. Rebecca knew that he was serious. And so she immediately began to help her son pack and said, you must go to Haran. I have a brother Laban still there. It's 400 miles northeast. And you must stay there or you won't live. He goes and he stays there. And you remember the story. That's where he he has his wife, but yet through deception, just as he deceived his brother, he is given Leah instead of Rachel. And then seven years later, he's given Rachel. And then about after 20 years, God has blessed him and multiplied his family and multiplied his flocks. And God wants him to return back to Canaan. And it's there as he returns back, he has to deal with a tremendous issue. You already know what the issue is. He has to face that brother that has made a vow to kill him. And so he sends messengers ahead. He wants the messengers to find out that if he bestows generous gifts, and if he declares that he's coming in peace, would he accept him back? Can you imagine the nervousness? And then when the messengers finally return, their message is this. Esau's coming to meet you and he's bringing 400 men with him. It's then that we read in the 32nd chapter, So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camel into two companies. He was so afraid and so distressed. Now you imagine you being in this situation and having to do this with your family. The idea is I don't want to lose everyone or He assumed that he was going to die for certain, but he didn't want all of his family to die. And so he literally took and divided his family, divided his flocks, believing and telling them that if he attacks one, the other doesn't go and help rescue them. The other takes and flees for their life so that at least half of his family will survive. And it's in this point, now you remember how we talked about the introduction of this lesson? We talked about it's not just verbiage of, Lord, I want to ask you something. It's at this point when he feels totally distressed. It's at this point when he realizes, this is bigger than me. This is out of my hands. 
If Esau chooses to take my life, there's no way I can live through this. It is at this point that he prays to God. What I suggest to you are not just words asking for God, but it is a heart and a life and a reality that he realizes he will not make it through this without God. Look with me, if you will, at this prayer. It is interesting to see the prayer as we look in verse 9. He begins with adoration to God. Now that's interesting when we think how desperate he is. He takes time to praise God as, O God, my father, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and your family, I'll deal with you. It was a great honor for him to be the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. And he recognizes that he's praying to the God that was the God that looked over them and that cared for them. The God that led them through difficult times. And he prays to that same God. But he also reminds them of the challenge that that God has put him through. God wants him to return back. And so notice the praise in verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two companies. Do you notice here, he sees God for how great he is, and he says, I'm not worthy. But did you also notice at the end of this verse, he also realizes the desperate situation that he is in? Do you remember before when we studied, for example, out of Isaiah, the sixth chapter? It was when Isaiah saw the greatness of God, That he then said, for I am ruined and undone. Do you remember when we studied in Luke 5 the story of Peter? Whenever Peter went fishing with Jesus and he caught the huge mass of fish that filled up two boats. It was when he saw the power of Jesus that he then fell down and said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O God. Do you realize now the beauty of the fact that he sees the greatness of God? He praises God, but he also realizes the terrible situation that he is in. I've had to divide my company into two, just in hopes that some will survive. Look, if you will, in verse 11 and see the deliverance. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mother with the children." You think he was serious about that? Absolutely. Do you think he was praying that, realizing that it was more than what he could do? Friends, I want to ask you something. If you think that you can do something on your own, why would you pray about it? If you think you can go out and make a living next week and provide your own food and your own shelter without God, why pray about it? If you believe that you can raise a family that can make it to heaven without God's assistance, why pray about your family? He prays here for something that he realizes. He can't do it on his own. And then we see the promise. That's right. He prays back to God a promise that God had made him. There is nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, we see it several times in the Scriptures of godly people reminding God of what He's promised them. And so look at verse 12. He says, For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. 
Do you, do you see what he's saying? Lord, it looks like that I'm about to be destroyed. It looks like my brother's going to take my life and the life of my family. But Lord, I want to remind you of the promise you gave me. You said you're going to take care of me. You said it would be my family that would be multiplied like the sea, the sands on the seashore. God, I just want to remind you, I believe in you. I've praised you. I adore you. I lay out my plea for deliverance and I remind you of your promise. Friends, we need to remind God of promises because it also reminds us of promises. God, I know that you've promised that good things can come out of tough situations. All things work together for good for those that love the Lord. Lord, I know you've promised that you always open up a door, a way of escape, that you'll never tempt us more than what we can stand. Friends, we need to remember the promises of God and we need to be willing to pray those promises of God. And then, the next day, he's ready to march tremendous, generous gifts before Esau in droves, one after another. And every time one passes by and Esau says, who are you, where are you from and where are you going? Each servant is to say, these are from your servant, Jacob. And they are gifts to our Lord, Esau. And then, that night, trying to protect his family, he went over a brook, a brook of Jabbok. And that means wrestler, which means that brook was probably named after this story we're about to talk about. You see, he wanted to get his family away from him because he knew he was the targeted one. And you remember that story. It's that night while he went back alone to face what would be tomorrow, perhaps a terrible day, that he wrestled with God. It's a story that we can come up with questions that we may not can find all the answers. But it says in 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him into the break of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him... He touched the socket of his hip. Another translation say he struck the socket of his hip. Talking about Jacob's hip was struck by the man of God. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. What a story. Some says this was an angel of God. The scriptures never says it was an angel of God. We see that he's called a man and we see that he's called God as we read throughout this paragraph, which leads us to believe it was God incarnated into the figure of a man. And he wrestled. But notice, in one sense, he couldn't fully prevail over the man of God, but at the same time, he wouldn't give up. He wouldn't turn loose. And so as day was breaking, keep in mind, no man can see the face of God and live. And as day was breaking, the man of God was saying, you must turn loose of me. Day is breaking. Now, you remember his desperate situation? He hangs on. He says, I will not turn loose until you bless me. I now start to picture what it might mean to ask God. 
God, I can't turn loose. I can't make it without you. If I turn loose of you, and you and your blessings are away from me, I'm doomed. Isn't it interesting that when he was willing to give up self, when it appeared that he was going to be defeated by his brother and could not prevail over the man of God completely, not in the sense of a full victory, but just hanging on, it was then that he won. It was at the time, if you could have come to Jacob, I believe you could have asked him, are you at your weakest point in life? He would have probably said, I've never been more afraid. I've never been more destitute than now of power. And it was then that he received blessings from God. Friends, God wants us to ask in total dependency. Look with me, if you will, Matthew, the seventh chapter. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, we see what we could read many, many places. I just want us to read it here at one place as we then go over and make some closing comments out of our text that has already been capably read for us. But look at Matthew, the seventh chapter. And as we look at this, I just want you to consider the word ask. Okay? How does God feel about us asking? Is it something that he suggests or is it something that he's telling us we can't have a relationship with God if we don't understand the necessity for us to wholly lean upon God? Notice how he says here in Matthew 7. Let's begin by reading 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks it will be open. Now, it's interesting in our English that even the acronym for this verse would spell out ask, ask, seek, knock. But even the seek and the knock is pointing to the concept, the principle that we are leaning upon God. We're asking God. In other words, it's one thing for us to ask, but who asks? Only those that are in humility ask. Let's face it. Why don't we ask a question in a class? There's a class gathered and we don't understand something. Why don't we just put up our hand and say, Hey, teacher, you're going over something and I just don't get that at all. The reality is we don't do that because we're not humble enough to do that. I don't want to admit to the whole class that I do not know. I do not want to admit that I need help when it appears that no one else around me needs that help. How many of us men do not want to admit that we need help in finding directions? And so we drive and we drive because to ask is humiliating. Why do some people not ask God? A proud and an arrogant heart doesn't have the ability to ask God. And then not just ask, but seek. It is a continual longing for the will of God to be carried out in life. And then it's not just seeking, as in a careful search, a diligent search, but it's also knocking. And the idea of knocking is that persistence. I'm going to do it today, and I'm going to do it tomorrow, and I'm going to do it next year, and I'm going to do it the next year. Our life is going to become a life where we are constantly asking, seeking, knocking. In the Greek, it literally means rapping. Now, many of us have gone door knocking. 
If you had to describe your prayer life as you have seen some people knock on doors. I've been with some people that knock on doors and it's like this. Now, if someone was real close to the door or someone was waiting to answer the door, they would answer that. Oh, hello, what do you, we wanted to invite you to a gospel meeting we're having. We also would like to invite you to study the Bible. Would you have interest in either of those two? But you know, if someone's in the back of the house, that just doesn't seem like you really want them to come to the front of the house, does it? Now, I've knocked with others of you. When you knock, I've thought to myself, Oh, it doesn't matter where they are in the house. They're coming to the door. How do you knock in your prayer life? Well, Lord, I, I've just remembered something. Uh, I haven't talked to you in a while, Lord, but, but here's something I wanted to bring to you. Might not talk to you again in a while, God. But you see, it's not just the verbiage. It's the life. It's the life that is, that is totally depraved of self. It says, I can't make it. I'm wholly dependent upon you. Notice how he says it in 7, 8, 9, and 10. I'm sorry, we read 7, 8. Look, 9, 10, 11. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? A stone could look like a piece of bread, but an earthly father would know better. He wouldn't make that mistake. Here, son, here's your piece of bread. A fish and a serpent are both animals. A father wouldn't make that mistake. Here, son, here, here's a nice fish, and it'd be a snake. Now, if earthly fathers know that much, they know how to give. How much more does the Heavenly Father know? Look at verse 11 again. They know how to give. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give? But now here's the key. He brings it right back around. In other words, it appeared for just a moment he was going to change a little bit of the subject here. In 7 and 8, he's going to talk about asking. But now he's going to talk about because God knows how to give. And you would think now he's just going to move on to something else. But no, what does he do? He brings it now right back around to where he began. Yes, he does know how to give. He knows not to give a stone or not to give a serpent. But you know who he gives to? It's that reminder again. He gives to those who ask. God wants us to ask. We're out of time. Let's come back tonight and let's finish James. All of this is the first two-thirds. We'll come in tonight and we'll look where James tells us. You don't have because you didn't ask. Are you asking? You ask miss. And then the last six verses, down to verse 10, he says, here's the problem. You just weren't humble. If you're able to be back here tonight, here's where I think we will have succeeded in our study if we leave here tonight saying this. You can't separate a humble life 
and a strong prayer life. That's the point that I hope you get from this study this morning and tonight put together. In other words, someone says, I I want to work on my prayer life. If you're not working on a humble life of submission to God, you can't ever succeed in a prayer life. Now let's succeed at both. They're built together. Cohabitate together. We extend an invitation for us to be humble. For us to ask, I I need God's help. I need forgiveness. I need prayers. If you've never been baptized into Christ for remission of sins, or if you have been baptized into Christ and since then you've fallen away and you need to come back and ask forgiveness and pray forgiveness, we'd love to help each other. We'd love to spend an eternity with God together. But the only one of us that will make it will be those that are humble enough to realize we'll never make it alone. If we can help you come as we stand, as we sing.